This is Charlotte Donlin, and you're listening to Hope for the Lonely. Learn more about my first book, The Great Belonging, and my other writing and work at charlottedonlin.com. Welcome, Gordon. It's good to have you on this episode, um, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. I've been looking forward to this conversation about loneliness and grief for many reasons. Um, usually I ask guests to start with their definition of loneliness and belonging, but for this episode, I would like to jump right in to grief. So can you tell us a bit about grief? Um, what causes it? Maybe the definition and just any other information you think is important for the beginning of this conversation with regard to yeah, grief. Yeah. Um, I'll start with what causes it and then maybe get into the definition, but I would in a simple way, I would say what causes grief is living in a world we weren't made for. Um, we live in a fallen world, and so we experience things that we weren't made for. That's the loss of something, suffering, even sin. We do things we don't want to do and things we ought to do we don't do. I think they're the things that tend to spawn grief or bring grief to the surface. So if I was going to define grief, it, it's simply kind of experiencing and expressing the pain of living in a fallen world. We, we're to feel it, we're to express it, we're to live into the grief that comes. And I just, I think we experience that on a regular basis if we think in the categories of sin, suffering, and death as the things we weren't made to experience. Mm. Um, when I first met with you several years ago, uh, you helped me see that I had not grieved things from my life that were worthy of grief. Um, I will always be thankful for you um, and you helping me see this and how that has impacted my life since then. Um, with regard to sin, suffering, and death, um, is this common for people to not grieve these things, like to um, avoid them or deny them or um, busy themselves enough to be distracted by them? What do you see um, with your clients or um, just other people that you come into contact with? Yeah. Well, I, I think grieving is so fundamental and so necessary to everyday life and really starts so early. I think in some ways we're all shut down to it and not doing it and hardened to it before we're even able to awaken to be able to do it. So by way of example, I mean, a vulnerable child is born to two parents who who are going to fail that child. Like there's a, I mean, a child may come out crying. He doesn't realize he's grieving, but there's really grief in that moment for the parents and the child. But we just don't um, we don't see it that way. So I'm almost always thinking in the background as I'm meeting with someone that there's places of grief, pockets of grief, things they they haven't grieved. And in fact, I. I there will be people who come into my office and, and really will sit down and begin grieving because I think the aroma of the office invites them to that. And they will say something like, I, I've not wept in 30 years. I don't know what's going on. And I think part of what's happening is the Holy Spirit's just pursuing them and saying, you want to be vulnerable. You want to depend on something more than yourself. Um, I think it was Martin Luther who said that you know, the result of sin is it turns us in on ourselves. Grief turns us outward. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It, and when we grieve and we're comforted by the Lord, it actually strengthens our ability to be dependent or interdependent. So I think it's fundamental to faith, to living, to community. 
but I think we're so inclined not to do it and and we don't do it. And again, I think it's more as an adult that we begin to awaken to it. Mm. Um, what are some things that help people awaken to it? Like, is it a big event or um, a big loss that they experience or, or can someone awaken to it just through living yeah. <laughs> and facing sin and suffering in smaller ways? Well, I do think the beauty of this world is always calling us to recognize our grief. This is um, Romans 8 when it says, even we Christians who have the Holy Spirit within us is a foretaste of future glory, grown to be released from pain and suffering. We too would anxiously for that day when God will give us our full rights as his children. It really says the Holy Spirit coming in us makes us aware that we were made for a beautiful, you know, holy world that we don't live in. So that brings a level of pain and suffering. So I. Or you Romans 1, where it says, God can clearly be seen through what has been made, but we push that away. I, I think it takes some level of the strengthening of dependency that I talked about a second ago. It takes grief to open up to beauty, because as we're grieving and God holds us, we have the strength to also let beauty impact us or come into us. So I think we're always being pursued towards grief, but I think where we harden or get into our flesh is we run away from that. So a big loss for some people is what brings grief to the surface. For me, when I went out and studied under Dan Allender and Larry Crabb when I was about 29, I hadn't thought at all about grief or suffering. And I'd really been involved in more Christian communities that ran away from it pretty intensely. So I spent it six months to a year listening to these guys and thinking, what is wrong with them? And how come they don't have any joy? And, you know, I just was kind of mocking them. And it was a, really, it was about a year after I got out of that counseling program that I was watching a movie. And in the first five minutes of the movie, they painted a picture of a boy who felt like an alien in his family. And I began to weep and I could not stop crying the whole movie. And as I w got out into the parking lot with my wife, I said, honey, I've been sad my whole life and pretending I'm not. I just can't do it anymore. And so I think it was teaching that kind of began pursuing me. But behind that, the world, the Lord was asking me to do it. But that movie in that moment, like just being in that moment and picturing my life on the screen is really what brought forth the grief. Mm. So it really can happen um, in a multitude of yeah. ways with, just with people being open to the Holy Spirit being pursued by God and maybe some kind of intersection of something that touches them in their particular story and their particular yeah, grief. Yeah, no, that's well said. And, and I'm kind of thinking, I mean, you think about Jesus, he was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. If Christ is in us, he's wanting to move us towards sorrow. So I'm not trying to make someone sorrow. I'm trying to help them find their sorrow. Mm -hmm. Find what's yeah, already there. Yeah, they the want to do that. They, Christ in them wants to help them move toward that. And so I only have to help facilitate that. Um. How do you think the church in America does with grief um, as a as a church and or as um, making room for people to grieve? I, I, you know, it's hard for me to speak to the church in America because I live in a very different segment. I'm culturally encapsulated in my area of the um, U.S. So I, I, I'll just speak with what little I know. I would say. I think the church is doing better. I mean, uh, I 
yesterday I was on Amazon buying a book and I saw a book on lament and I thought that's about the fourth or fifth book I've seen advertised this month on lament. And I remember preaching on it about 20 Hmm. years ago and thinking no one I know of is talking about this kind of thing. So I I think we're doing better. I I do. I see some signs, you know, that are hopeful, but I would, I would want us to think if we all have a fleshly nature, that fleshly nature is always pushing us away from interdependence, away from vulnerability with the Lord. So there's, and, and the world's going to do the same thing. So there's always things trying to work against us grieving well. And unless we're accepting of it and practicing it and inviting others towards it, we'll, we won't continue to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to um, loneliness and grieving, um, how do you think those two things intersect? Uh, well, I guess I, I would say this. Um, I think... I think aloneness. I'm gonna let me distinguish first between aloneness and loneliness, and then talk about the connection of grief to loneliness. I actually think aloneness and loneliness are different. Different. I think aloneness is good. I think it's a recognition that we were really made for unbroken relationship. We were made not to be alone. So when we feel that, it's actually a recognition of what's true. I think loneliness is when we blame ourselves or someone else for that aloneness. I think loneliness is is us beginning to take some responsibility or it's someone else's fault. And we're moving away from the connection that aloneness could bring in our hearts to the Lord, to beauty, to all that's good. Um, And so I think grief and loneliness are really acquainted because loneliness is moving us into ourselves. And I think where we can feel that and grieve that, that moves us back outward toward the Lord and toward others. So um, I just see, you know, where someone is experiencing loneliness versus aloneness. And I, again, I think they're two different things that, again, I think grief would be pursuing them and saying, this isn't your fault. You haven't done something wrong. Maybe you have been harmed by others in a way that has caused you to shut down. But let's grieve that and move back out towards interdependence where we can. Okay, so it sounds like um, you're saying grief is a necessary part of our the way we navigate yeah. our loneliness. And I guess I would say in no. that it can move us. No. Go ahead. I guess I would say if if we're growing into grieving well, I don't think we'll experience loneliness the same way. I think we will become more connected and have more buoyancy. And then in times of aloneness, we're not shutting down and blaming ourselves or others. We're alone and we're like, Lord hold us, comfort us remind us of what's true. And actually that can become a moment of connection, maybe not with another human being, but it can become a restorative life-giving thing. So I would say the more we're grieving as a way of life, loneliness is owning us less. The grief disarms the loneliness. Mm. So um, a friend of mine lost her brother in a tragic accident um, recently-ish. And um I was talking to her a couple weeks ago and she said, you know, I hear you talking about loneliness and um, I've thought I'm, I'm not a lonely person. I don't struggle with loneliness, but ever since my brother died, I have realized that I am lonely and it's in my grief that I, I feel this loneliness. And it's not just that I miss my brother. It's that I feel like um, no one else really knows the pain that I know right now. 
And um, she said, this sort of loneliness in my grief is opening me up to other forms of loneliness that I feel. Um, so with regard to someone feeling alone in their alone in their grief, what are some um, like suggestions to people who might feel yeah. that way? Well, I, I think we, we really, really minimize the value of simply helping someone talk about their grief or not, depending on if they want to or not. But since simply holding it with them, like I would use the term a compassionate witness to just compassionately help someone name or witness their loss is really a way to help them um, shoulder it. I personally believe if we're caring well for others, as we come alongside them and take some of their sorrow, grief, loneliness on and walk away with it, we actually feel worse and we should. And they feel a little bit better because, and I don't mean in any super spiritual way, I think in the background of their heart, they may hear God saying, I've not forgotten you, simply because someone was a picture of Christ to them in shouldering or sharing their grief. I have a, let me find this verse from Hebrews 13.3. I forget where I have it. It, it. Oh yeah. Don't forget about those in prison. Suffer with them as though you were there yourself. Share the sorrow of those being mistreated as though you feel their pain in your own bodies. We just rarely get that kind of advice. So and oftentimes, as I'm talking with people who are walking alongside those who are hurting, lonely, or um, grieved, they'll, their most normal comment will be to me, I don't know what to do. And I'm saying, you're not supposed to know what to do. That's a lie that you're supposed to know what to do. You have to enter into the mystery of caring and kind of compassionately just surrender the consequences of involvement and come alongside that person and simply offer what you have, your presence. But we can minimize the incredible value of that. Mm. Um, I think it also can be awkward Mm -hmm. to do that (laughs) or uncomfortable. And we don't um, necessarily want to walk into spaces that are awkward and uncomfortable. Um, But I'll say from experience, when I do um, decide to or feel led to be what you, I love your term, a compassionate witness, in the midst of someone else's pain, um, the awkwardness and the sense of being uncomfortable does kind of dissipate after a little bit. Um, and, and I think that is a grace that God gives us. Um, and I think the more we do it, the less awkward and uncomfortable it becomes over time. Um, and I, and I, Charlotte, I think you say it so well, it, it tends to be the awkwardness that pushes us away from, caring well for our neighbor who is grieving. And yet I don't think in general we're encouraging people to practice that awkwardness and get better at it. And so I'll try to make sense of this. When I, um, the first loss, I really felt like I welcomed when I, after I saw that movie, okay, and began to recognize that there was grief I hadn't felt, we began to grieve a little bit. Well, soon after that, my wife had a a miscarriage, and it would have been our first child, and we had been trying to be pregnant for a while. And so a lot of grief came forth because I hadn't grieved much in my life. So I think I was grieving a lifetime of things I haven't grieved, in addition to really feeling the loss of this miscarriage and and baby. Well, that was in 1993 or four, And that grief felt 
It felt awkward. It felt dark. It felt heavy. I felt like I was fighting something to just try to accept it and live into it. It felt incredibly awkward. Okay. In 2010, which would be 15 years later, my brother died by suicide, and that was a much larger grief. And yet, I felt the Lord with me as I was grieving. It wasn't as heavy. It wasn't as dark. It wasn't as painful. It was real. And I simply just grieved it as it came. But my sense of union with the Lord, I was a much more fleshly, proud, self-reliant, everything person in 1995. And just growing little by little, my my sense of dependency on the Lord was strengthened. My sense of fellowship with him was richer. So as I was grieving in 2010, I felt him with me. I didn't have to access him. And, and so I would love for us to become people who practiced better at awkwardness and got better at it so that we were people who moved into sin, suffering, and death and not away from it. Too often, it could be mm-hmm. someone who has an affair. Everyone's running away instead of toward the people to, to love them and be with them or suffering and death. Like whatever it is, we tend to move away from it and into it. And I think if we became people who practiced at awkwardness, we would be growing the buoyancy to really live the gospel with much more strength. Well, and I think um, it sounds like that is also a way that people would feel more of a sense of belonging as those who are grieving, you know, if people are moving toward them instead of away from them. Um, So um, I would like to talk a little bit now about um, communal grief. Um, We in my community have... um, lost a young woman recently to a tragic, awful um, death. And there are light blue bows um, on lampposts and front doors and business signs all over my community. And um, they were initially put up, um, you know, in honor of her while the search was going on. And now they hang in memory of her. And it's... um, they also hang in a desire for people to have justice um, in her name for various reasons of how this this event has unfolded. But when I drive through my neighborhood and see the bows, I cry. And, you know, I've been crying for days now in my car by myself usually. And um, when I cry and grieve her death, like I didn't know her. I don't know her family but I feel like it's something bigger than me and bigger than just me being sad about something. Um, can you speak to like the nature of communal grief and how, um, how that works, how we carry it and, um, and what it looks like to grieve together as a community? Yeah. Well, realize in some ways you were grieving for the community alone, first of all. So, that may not always be that we're actually grieving together, hand in hand, face to face. Right, right, right. Um, but I guess I haven't thought tons about this. But my first thought would be: I think a tragedy like that it just it it kind of robs us of our assumptive world. Well, when something like that assumptive. happens, our assumptive world is shattered. And mm-hmm. and then I, I think it's important to have people around us who share in that grief, who say. And really, a lot of that grief is what I would call anguish. It's what it's anger and sorrow mixed together. It's really what Jesus expressed in Luke, no, John 11, before he raised Lazarus from the dead. 
he loved Lazarus mm-hmm. so much and, and he loved the people who were grieving and he hated that they had to experience this in this fallen world. And so he actually was irritated and then he wept and it was this anguish. This So I think a lot of this grief is anguish, which is an anger that evil is the prince of this world and that he orchestrates things like this. And it's just pure evil. And so our anguish gives us strength as we grieve that together, like some of our anger is affirmed that we should continue to stand against injustice wherever it is. But the sorrow softens us, and it reminds us that we too commit injustice. We too are not the standard bearers of all that is good and holy. And so to have that anguish, it's a good mixture. And as we share that to others, I think it strengthens and softens us at the same time so that we become better instruments of justice. I, I think how we there, there's a million ways we do that a, a prayer visual uh, talking with a friend as you mentioned alone in your car um, I just the the blue bows were really a way of I think marking injustice and that was communal grief I've seen them as well um, so so when um, when people experience grief that's impacted their community. Um, what are some ways that they can, or we, can be less alone in that? Um, is it just talking about it? Is it, you know, saying her name? Is it saying Anaya Blanchard? Is it um, remembering or allowing others to remember? Um, yeah, and yes, yeah, so I think all of those things. And I guess I would just add this, that, it talks in the scriptures about we don't grieve as those who don't have hope. And we want mm-hmm. grieving to move us outward and toward connection. So oftentimes sharing that with others, again, I think that's where we're strengthened and softened at the same time. Um, and um, what was the question again? I'm so sorry. Um, I was just asking about the different ways that we can have a sense of belonging oh, in yeah, our yeah. um in our grief and in our loneliness. I, I don't, yeah, I guess I would say this. Like to feel less yeah. lonely in our grief. I don't think that there can be any other better sense of community than perhaps grieving together. Because I think it's the most vulnerable emotion. There's a level of surrender and humility and grief. And when you can actually share that with someone else, it's just so connecting and so strengthening that I, I think you would naturally feel less alone. In fact, I think earlier when we were mm-hmm. talking about it, why... If evil is embodied in the world, the flesh and the devil, why the world and the flesh would pull us away from vulnerability and grieving is because that's what joins us with others and strengthens us as a community. Mm-hmm. This is um, in, in Luke's, I believe it's Luke 17, people come to Jesus and ask him about the, the tower that fell in Siloam and killed 18 people and, and Herod killed some religious worshipers. And they're asking Jesus about them. And the first thing Jesus says is, oh, what do you think that you're worse sinners than them. And there was a belief in that time that our sin caused the tragedy, and we can have the same type of thing here. When we face tragedy, the, the quickest thing we do is think, how can we prevent that? Or what did we do wrong? Or what could we do better? And mm-hmm. that's a moving towards self-reliance. And, and Jesus says, what do you think you're worse sinners than them? And he says, unless you likewise repent, you will also perish. And, and he uses re- repent there is more just a turning away from yourself toward the Lord. Like this fallen world is a regular reminder that we're to turn outward toward the Lord, and that's what strengthens our sense of community and disarms our sense of loneliness. 
Mm. Um, you mentioned hope a bit ago. <laughs> um, what does it look? What does it look like to have hope in the midst of suffering when we are grieving? When we may feel lonely in our grief. My simple definition might be: I was going to say trying to hold on to the Lord and your belief that the kingdom's coming, but maybe I would say it this way: trying to let the Lord hold on to you, like He's there and pursuing and cares. Mm. But those things tend to again turn us into ourselves and separate us. And remember, the Bible talks instead of about right and wrong. The, the bigger, major categories in the Scripture are life and death. And death comes in separation, mm. and life comes in connectedness. And so we want to be moving towards that kind of connectedness. Um, and what, what was? Do you think hope? Um... Oh, hope. Do you think as we move to, more toward um, connection with even ourselves, with others, and with God, does that create more of a fertile ground yeah. for hope? I would say this, yes. Hope, mature hope is, and really it's knowing the Lord that we know ourselves and we're connected to each other. Like he's kind of the glue that connects us to ourselves and others. So as we're knowing the Lord more and more and resting in him, hope becomes something we live. And hope is a sense that we're in the kingdom, it's, it's, we're moving towards something better, and we will live there one day in fullness. So we can actually mature, and that hope can own us. But we never see it. Like the illustration I gave with my brother, his, his death was so much more painful, but it didn't turn me in on myself, because I think I had more buoyancy. There was just more maturity in the Lord. I wasn't trying to be hopeful. I was mostly grieving and hurting. But there was a hope and a lightness in me that wasn't there 15 years prior. So mm -hmm. I think hope is something more we grow into and finds us. I think the more you try to find it and manage it, you'll move away from it. Mm, that's good to know. <laughs> I sometimes have trouble hoping. Um, as I see tragedy and I see um, injustice and I see oppression and I see all of these things that seem... Um, so big and so huge that and that can't be fixed that can't be undone and i i become hopeless honestly well, but, but, um, but Charlotte, i would say this hope as a first response in terms of your countenance being lifted and you feeling like it's all going to be set right as a first response i think is denial or immaturity i think if your first response is is anguish anger and sorrow in a way that it's feeling like it's disconnecting you from hope. But then you join with some others in the Lord in feeling that, and you come together, and, and, and together you are all moving towards a better sense of justice in your world, whatever that may be. You're so owned by the injustice that as you grieve it, as you anguish it, as you connect with others in it, you're actually strengthened to fight injustice. That's what brings the hope. So if, if I mean, it irritates me to no end when someone starts with hope and is a tragedy like mm. that. I think that's actually disconnecting you from hope. And I think that's feigned happiness or something like that. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. And, you know, I, I now I wonder, well, does it mean I haven't grieved enough? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, well, I would um, at least say to move to yeah, that. next. Yeah. I would at least say this, that your first response is right, not wrong. <laughs> you know, that you feel the injustice of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, one other thing I've been thinking about um, with regard to grief and uh, and loneliness and grief is how um, 
like a husband and a wife um, are impacted by grief together, like how our marriages or even, um, you know, a boyfriend and a girlfriend, how are, how does grief impact our relationships with other people? Primarily our closer like relationships with people. Yeah. If we think about some of the things we've already talked about and, and the difficulty of grieving, I would say when grief intersects into a relational world, it invites the possibility of more togetherness or more alienation. Again, life and death. Mm. Death being disconnection, life being more attachment and connection. So I think when grief happens, it's an opportunity to actually move more towards attachment. But what's hard is everyone's going to grieve differently, personality, gender. And, and, and so in those moments, you actually need more awareness and more patience to do it well. I think of two verses in Romans 12, 12, it says, rejoice in hope, slow down in tribulation, persevere in prayer. We tend to speed up in tribulation and then be slow to quick and be slow to speak and quick to listen was spoken to a church in trial. So if, and grief obviously is a trial, like to welcome sin, suffering, or death is a trial that has the potential to bring us together, but we actually have to slow down and be more prayerful and thoughtful. Like that miscarriage I talked about was really the first time my wife and I grieved together. And I recognized there was ways I could grieve with her, and I had to push myself as a man to be more present to her grief. But then there were some places as the mother who carried that baby inside of her, her grief was different and had some more intensity where I had to have a level of respect and admiration for her dignity and let her grieve alone in some ways that I couldn't fix, but I could honor and wait with her to move through. So those type of nuances and personalities and stories, they're just so strong and so real, and they're just harder to work through in a moment of grief. So then the bigger thing would be to slow down and those relationships, as you patiently and prayerfully and let the Spirit guide you through that, the grief, again, could enhance attachment, not cause separation. But oftentimes we move through it too quick, quick, we react strongly, we don't ask for more information, and then the grief's dividing us. Mm. Um, I was talking to a friend last night um, about marriage, and and she said, well, what what has kept you and Tim together? <laughs> and um, we've been married, you know, more than 20 years, and... Um, you know, I, I think we have a good marriage and I appreciate um, our journey together as husband and wife. And I told her that something I wrote about in my book um, with regard to loneliness in marriage is that I think we are still married today or one reason I still want to be married to him today is because we have suffered together. And um you know, we faced a lot of suffering with, you know, my mental illness, you know, things with our children, infertility um, before our first child was born. Um, and hearing you talk about grief, you know, I'm like we've suffered together, but we've also grieved yeah. together. And I think that might be more like a better answer for her um, because as you just described, the suffering could have torn us apart. Right. right. Well, there's even a term in the psychological literature called trauma bonding. And I think because trauma can open us up and invite vulnerability, it invites the possibility of 
stronger attachment. So I think the suffering that you and Tim went through, because, and certainly not all the time, but because you practiced and allowed it to open you up, there was a richer attaching. And as you're attaching in those moments, you're actually disarming future difficulty or future pain, because when you find suffering again, you have an easier time finding your way back to attachment because you've done it. Mm -hmm. And then you repeat that over time Um, and you become closer and closer. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, it just makes me really glad that I've been to therapy. (laughs) I've learned how to grieve and to recognize suffering and to hold space for suffering. Um, And let me... So well, let, what, let me say this um, real quick, um, because I think okay. if, if we do the, I think what the scriptures teach, if you do the little hard things over time, you find life instead of trying to run towards the easy things. Now, there's so much beauty in marriage, different than the suffering that is worth celebrating. But if you learn to do the hard together, it enhances all those other beautiful moments with richer connection. So you've mentioned a few times the idea of you know, that we're moving toward life or we're moving toward death. Um, Do you have any, you know, thoughts about that with regard to loneliness specifically um, that you haven't already mentioned? And if if we connect that in the context of grief, I, I would say this, that good grief or redemptive grief, these categories are in 2 Corinthians 7, good grief is it moves us away from self. I've talked about that and, and towards attachment. Mm-hmm. And then um, non-redemptive grief moves us into ourself. So good grief is grief that is less about self. And if you can think about like, oh, I should have done this and I should have prevented that. And, and like oftentimes I'll have a spouse come in who's lost someone and I see them literally fighting, trying to fight away self-contempt. Because it's so natural when you're in pain. So like I may, I may work with a doctor whose wife died because of a physical illness that he or she couldn't have prevented, okay? The spouse dies and, um, and yet they're thinking, I should have known better. I should have done this. I could have done that. It is really hard to just feel the vulnerability of grief. But as we do that, again, I think it opens us up and strengthens us where we are moving away from loneliness and that, I mean, no one may be around, but we're actually moving away from a loneliness. I would say we're connecting more with the Lord, which then gives the buoyancy outside of that moment to connect more with others. So oftentimes when I'm working with someone and I hear more self-condemnation, self-absorption, self-reliance, just more self in their grief, I'm trying to disarm that and help them simply to grieve vulnerably and accept that loss happens that they can't prevent. And I think that's restoring their relationality as we do that. Mm. So when people are grieving or suffering or struggling with loneliness, um, at what point or what are some signs that you think it's time to maybe meet with a counselor or therapist? Like, I think the sim- one of the simplest answers might be if they have nobody they're talking to, that would be a simple answer. When it says, um, don't forsake the assembling together, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, I don't think that meant listen to a 45-minute sermon and leave church, okay? I think it meant community should be softening us and taking us out of deception, which I think means conversation, all right? 
that there has to be some level of community that goes beyond just hearing, okay? Kind of a reciprocity where I'm speaking and listening. And that's where sometimes liturgy and things, participation in a church help you experience more of that softening and taking out of deception. But that should also be happening in our Christian community where I did my master's in counseling. One of the things that really attracted me to the program is they said counseling is a normal and natural function of Christian community, meaning we should be counseling and encouraging one another all the time. So one simple thing would be if if you're not talking to anyone and, and what counseling can do, it's a very safe, you know, oftentimes one hour a week, one hour a month, one hour every other week where you can practice at relationship. And I say good counseling is a bridge back to the normal ways Christian community should be working. Right. And so the, I guess, so that would be one, if you're really not talking to anyone, that would be a good sign. Another thing would be if those, those, um, assaults of self, the self-reliance, the self-contempt, if you can't get away from them, it then, and, and yet you are talking to someone, it, it probably means you do need a tool. And that's what you were mentioning. I said to you, like you can build a pool with a backhoe or a shovel, right? But you're going to build the pool a lot quicker with a backhoe. All right. And so if you're more stuck and those um, self-condemning messages are so loud, it's a good sign that you need a tool to help you get somewhere a little bit quicker. Um, and, 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 you know, like we can have physical pains and they oftentimes feel more real and it seems easier to go to a doctor. And, you, you know, you might say, I'm going to go to a doctor, at least get an x-ray. And the x-ray may say, you know what, there's nothing wrong. And you go home and you feel relieved because you heard there was nothing wrong. I've had many people not sure not whether they need counseling. Like I might see a young couple and they're believing this myth that there's this perfect couple out there and every problem they have, it's because they're so bad. And then I meet with them and I'm like, man, you you guys got it going on. Like there's so much good here. And and I'll say to them, I don't want to minimize some of your pain. I just want to normalize it. Any young couple is feeling a lot of what you're feeling. And so they leave deeply encouraged and then they might come back for a maintenance visit in six months or something. So even if you're not sure, in a lot of other areas, we would take the risk, but I guess the vulnerability of counseling makes it harder to do that. But a good therapist isn't going to like keep you there if you don't need to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for um, you know sharing some of your thoughts about that. I know a lot of um, Christians are hesitant to, um, to go to counseling or therapy, and um, I just would love for it to be normalized even more. And, um, and I would love for us to not need it as much. Like you mentioned, like as we, um, learn, you know, things that we learn in counseling can be applied in our Christian communities, um, with each other. So, yeah. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add about loneliness or belonging or grief? Um, I guess I, I would, and I've probably said this, but to me, one of the big differences I see between aloneness and belonging is, I guess, is how you get to belonging. Okay. I, I distinguished earlier between aloneness and loneliness, saying I think aloneness is normal. Loneliness is more when you're taking responsibility for that or blaming. There's a sense of you-ness in that that makes you more lonely, where I think belonging is a gift. Okay. Like, when our daughters came into our family, like they belonged, they didn't need to earn that. And we didn't feel like they needed to earn that. And we wanted to give our love to them as a gift. 
Well, we the more we believe that good intimate relationship comes as a gift, I think the more we move towards that. The more we feel like it's on our shoulders and I have to or I must, and if it's not happening, I'm doing something wrong. And I think we're moving away from that belonging. So the more we can see, I mean, it says, I think it's John 3, 27, that everything comes down from God as a gift, right? Or James 1, all, you know, everything good comes down from heaven as a gift from God. So I think the more we can not, again, play into the blaming of everything on ourselves or others, it's what Adam and Eve did. And the, the again, the sin, suffering, and death is to turn us up and out and to look to the Lord and say, Lord... If I'm ever going to feel like I belong, it's going to come as a gift. I can't earn or deserve this. So help me move towards it with that mindset. And then I think that's moving towards life where you will give and receive better in community and have a better sense of belonging. I think that's a good place for us to stop. Okay. Well, before I ask you the last two questions that I that I ask all of my guests, yeah. um. So the first one is, what is one of your earliest memories of belonging? Yeah, I, I guess the, the for me, it probably would have been like in New Jersey, they call it Pop Warner football. But being part of a team, I think in fourth, well, actually in fourth grade, I went out the first year and I, I made it through, we always did two laps exercises and then another two laps. On the second day, on the second two laps, I kept running all the way home. So I, the next year I stayed on the team and... um and that was probably my first sense of belonging, where I really felt I was participating with others towards um, something bigger. And, you know, and you get a jersey and a name, and it just, it helps facilitate some of that sense of belonging. And the second one is, what are three things you're grateful for right now? Um, well, the, the, the most obvious is what I feel every day, and just the, the grace of my wife, I say often, um, there's three ways I know God's mercies are new every morning. One is the says it in the Bible. Another is my cup of coffee. It's just a good reminder that God's mercies are new every morning. And then the fact that my wife is still there with all I've put her through, um, that feels like a huge grace. Um, so that would be one. And um, my daughters, just their beauty. And um, we're in a stage where they're more friends. They're adults, young adults. And we can enjoy the same things, reading a book and working out together. And um, and I just, I don't think I ever envisioned that type of relationship with my grown children. Um, so that feels like a, a real gift that I'm grateful for. And then probably the last would just be part of today um, to, to counsel, to speak, to teach, to try to be someone who brings life and shares life. And the privilege and honor of that um, is a great gift. You know, my my undergrad was in nautical science, and I worked on oil tankers and tugboats. And um, this is a far cry from that and a great surprise. So I'm grateful to be able to do it. Mm. Well, and I'm grateful that you do it. And I appreciate um, how you want others to move more toward life. Um, I love that. And I hope that listeners um, of this episode will... Um, see more clearly how to move toward life and how God moves us toward life, how we can move each other toward life um, in our grief and in our loneliness. So thank you again for, for coming on Hope for the Lonely. Well, thanks for having me. And um, 
I just I love your courage and engagement, how you keep moving and offering good things to people. Thanks for listening to Hope for the Lonely. Learn more about my writing and work at charlottedonlin.com.